joining me for quite excellent episode number 58. It has been a bit since our last episode, which was all the way back in November, the beginning of November, a shamefully long two months ago. I didn't really intend such a long absence, but with two holiday breaks, finals, and culminating assignments for the semester, we just didn't get any new poetry in, which is a tragedy, thankfully. We have some great student analysis to get to, and another new poem, one from a poet we've already spent some time with. This one is How to Write a Poem from Laura Hershey on the life and work of an American master. We last read Hershey in You Get Proud by Practicing, the first poem of the year. Just as in that poem, Hershey continues to offer good advice. This time, it is in the subject of poetry, and maybe a bit more. First, however, we need to get back to Maya Angelou's poem, When Great Trees Fall. Here's the poem, read by me this time, to hear a wonderful reading by Carrie Millico. Please take a listen to the previous episode. When Great Trees Fall by Maya Angelou When great trees fall, rocks on distant hills shudder. Lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. When great trees fall in forests, small things recoil into silence, their senses eroded beyond fear. When great souls die, the air around us becomes light, rare, sterile. We breathe briefly, our eyes briefly see with a hurtful clarity. Our memory suddenly sharpened, examines, gnaws on kind words unsaid, promised walks never taken. Great souls die, and our reality bound to them takes leave of us. Our souls dependent upon their nurture now shrink, wizened. Our minds, formed and informed by their radiance, fall away. We are not so much maddened as reduced to the unutterable ignorance of dark, cold caves. And when great souls die, after a period, peace blooms. Slowly and always irregularly, spaces fill with a kind of soothing electric vibration. Our senses, restored never to be the same, whisper to us. They existed. They existed. We can be. Be and be better, for they existed. Poetry explores a great many real emotions, some light and airy and simple and fun, and others robust and challenging. Sometimes there's optimism, sometimes there's not. Um, And while we've explored a number of different emotions and experiences, we haven't really talked a lot about loss. But loss is one of those big subjects that poetry inevitably is called to respond to because it's something that we all experience because it's something that every person at some point unfortunately has to know and so Maya Angelou's poem manages to explore this idea in a way that makes that loss feel unfortunately maybe very real and students wrote quite a bit on the subject 
A student said that the visual imagery in the poem, When Great Trees Fall, vividly explains how things are changed when essential people die. And another noted that lines like rocks on distant hills shudder and lions hunker down in tall grasses, these details tell the reader that death comes with a sense of fear and a sense of unknowing. Another writes that when great souls die, many hide in the unutterable ignorance of dark, cold caves, while society at large then fears the loss of others and tries to hide this pain that Angelou is exploring. A student writes that when Angelou refers to great souls, I don't think she means great people who contributed to society with amazing works of art and technology and engineering. Rather, she intends anyone that seemed great to someone. And I think this is an important part of this. The poem uses this word great frequently, and it's easy, I think, to imagine it is responding only to those who stand out to everyone, but a great person need only be someone who stands out to you, who's important to you. Another student writes that the speaker notes how the air, in particular, appears to become light and sterile. They say that it is this description that shows how difficult it can be to take a breath after losing a significant loved one. A student notes that when the poet writes that rocks shudder and small things recoil into silence when great trees fall, these details show that there are things that hid under the tree's shadow that now, as a result of its loss, feel vulnerable. In the same way that maybe those that we felt we were living close to, that we were needing to be near to protect us, leave us exposed. A student writes that as time passes, they can recover from their losses, but they won't always feel the same as before, because they will know of this tragic event and they will carry it with them. That loss isn't something that goes away. Now, obviously, with a poem like this, that has this governing metaphor of great trees and great souls and the connection between those, the comparisons are essential to understanding the poem. And a lot of students explored the comparatives here. A student writes that Maya Angelou's poem, When Great Trees Fall, likens the cycles of life and death, disaster and peace to common occurrences in nature, with another writing that the imagery connects the loss of loved ones to the massive transformations in the forest, in the same way that our lives are transformed when someone we love is removed from our lives. Another reading is that a tree is the start of the food chain, just like many other plants and they are the ones who release energy into the system that can be used by others to survive. And people can have this relationship on our life. They can feel as though they are the ones that allow other things to be possible in our lives and the lives of those around us. My student notes that Angelou is relating the trees to people, and when these great souls die, all the people they were close to are affected because they are part of this larger ecosystem. Another writes that by relating these souls to trees, Angela almost makes them feel even more important, like how this enormous tree, this crucial part of the forest, has fallen. When this person 
a crucial part of your life has fallen, the forest suddenly feels more empty, as our lives may. Another writes that the author says that even the lions hunker down. And this is an animal that is often associated with strength and intimidation, and they are suddenly afraid of the falling tree. Even they shudder. Now, there's more than just the hurt in this poem. And uh, many students pointed to the optimism here, but I have to recognize that this may have been a hard poem for some, and one student specifically said as much. They noted that this poem was personal, and it was heartbreaking uh, because they've suffered a loss in their family. And that's hard, and I, I apologize for making that grief any more difficult as though it could be any more difficult. Another student tried to comfort, tried to point to the back half of this poem, and they suggested that we must be grateful for the fact that one so dear to us have ever walked this earth. And that is an important element of the last part of this poem. A student noted that the poem seems to explore different stages of grief, starting with ignorance and depression and hurt, but ultimately finding a way to acceptance. The student writes that although in the beginning Angelou presents death and destruction as an unbearable feeling, the author expresses that it doesn't always have to be something to run from, but rather to heal from, with another adding on that after grief a period of peace blooms, and that's when we realize that those people are never really gone because they're always with us in our memories and our hearts. Another student observes that the subjective imagery of that light, rare, sterile air when great souls die is unsettling for the atmosphere of a great forest, but we should still be thankful for those that have fallen forever being there. With the student writing that in the poem, When Great Trees Fall by Maya Angelou, the author explains how losing someone can affect those around them, but also give faith that they can better themselves from it. Adding on to this idea is a student that writes that knowing that nothing can last forever can actually help us learn from others' mistakes and help us strive to accomplish more than those before us. I think it's important that this poem ends on hope, that it ends on optimism, that it ends focused on what the people around us offer us even after they're gone. Because this poem has to end at some point. And like those losses, we need to take something away that hopefully allows us to build a little bit more. And this is a poem that does that. Now, a few students focused and considered elements of form, and I want to point those couple out. One wrote, When great trees fall, rock on distant hills shudder, and when great trees fall, in forests small things recoil into silence. And this student said that the use of repetition in here shows the impact a falling tree can have on the nature around it. Those that repetitive, when great trees fall, when great trees fall, when great souls die, when, when, when. It isn't just one loss, but it's a series of losses. It's recognizing things that we know about this person that we were used to experiencing with that person that are gone and how that sometimes happens more than once beyond when they're initially taken from us. 
Another student writes that the last stanza of the poem transitions from a mood of misery, as seen by the first part of the poem, to a hopeful mood created by a calm and enthusiastic tone. And again, that structure, by dividing this poem into different moods and different feelings that help us understand the big ideas, allows us to leave hopefully feeling fuller and at least a little bit more emotionally satisfied. The hurt isn't gone, but there is something else on offer, and I think that's an essential part of this poem. We've had a number of important writing tasks in these assignments. And while some of them were specific to poetry, like using words like stanza and including slashes where there are line breaks, others have just been good advice for all your writing, such as using the author's last name by itself, using short quotations, including adjectives for literary terms, and using multiple short quotations in a single sentence. Keep these in mind as we move into the new semester. Don't forget them. We are moving forward, though and returning to a writing task that is specific to poetry. But this writing task is so important that it is also our secret passphrase. The word is enjambment. E-N-J-A-M-B-M-E-N-T. I've also spelt it in the assignment itself. Now, enjambment is when the line ends without punctuation, and the sentence continues on to the line that follows. If you look at this week's poem, How to Write a Poem, Hershey uses enjambment when she says, don't try to write a poem at the start of the second stanza, and don't even try to write a couple lines down. You'll notice there is no punctuation at the ends of these lines. These are lines six and eight if you want to count. Enjambment is interesting because these are lines that are even more intentional than other lines. We kind of expect lines to finish with punctuation. I mean, this is how sentences work. So it makes sense for poetry to do the same thing with their lines, right? When a line is enjammed, the poet seems to be asking us to think about the words in that line all by themselves, as though anything or nothing could come next. So maybe there's some magic in the line as it exists, even if the idea hasn't quite wrapped up. I know that's all very complicated, so I'm going to give you another example. In When Great Trees Fall, the poem's last three lines conclude with, They existed. They existed. We can be. Be and be better. For they existed. The second to last line ends with be and be, before being enjammed. While the sentence altogether says be and be better, Angelou seems to want us to think about B&B by itself, too. I really like this enjambment for two reasons. The first is that without the punctuation, B&B seems to offer infinite possibilities. Without finishing the thought, the options for what we can be are unknown and maybe entirely up to us. The second reason... I like this so much, is that it separates B and B from better. And it's almost like the poem acknowledges how hard it is to be better. How hard it's going to be to be better. But, and it does that by breaking the phrase up. Making us work for the better. That will come as long as we keep going. As long as we keep reading. As long as we keep trying. The better is going to come. We just got to keep at it. 
Enjambment often works this way. It isolates words or groups of words, so we think about them by themselves. And at the same time, it breaks up groups of words, so we think about what happens when they are split up. I'll be honest, this is some nitty-gritty poetry analysis, but you can do it. I know that you can. You are brilliant. So, our secret passphrase is the word enjambment. The writing task is to actually explain what that enjambment is doing in the poem. Just identifying that something is present in the text shows a basic understanding of that vocabulary term. The important work is making a claim about what it means and explaining why. If you listen again to my exploration of the jammed line from Maya Angelou, you'll notice that each of my two explorations of the line required two sentences to explain why I liked it. I expect you will require multiple sentences to explore your selected enjambment as well. Now, this week's poem is talking directly to you, and it offers some sensible advice to you, should you wish to write poetry. And, honestly, I hope you do. Share it with me if you take the time to follow Hershey's advice. This week's poem is read by Michael Dubon, a poet out of Reno whose poem, In the Wash, was featured last year in episode 49 of the podcast. Here is How to Write a Poem by Laura Hershey. How to Write a Poem by Laura Hershey. Don't be brilliant. Don't use words for their own sake or to show how clever you are, how thoroughly you have subjugated them to your will, the words. Don't try to write a poem as good as your favorite poet. Don't even try to write a good poem. Just peel back the folds over your heart and shine into it, the strongest light that streams from your eyes or somewhere else. Whatever begins bubbling forth from there, whatever sound or smell or color swells up, makes your throat fill with unsaid tears, whatever threatens to ignite your hair, your eyelashes, if you get too close, Write that. Suck it in and quickly. Shape it with your tongue before you grow too afraid of it and it gets away. Don't think about writing a good poem or a great poem or the poem to end all poems. Write the poem you need to hear. Write the poem you need. Students, be sure to use the word enjambment. Then fully explain how your selected and jammed line creates a particular or effect or meaning. If you are spending fewer than two or three sentences explaining where it is and how it works, you are doing it wrong. And this is not your whole paragraph, by the way. This is a portion of your paragraph and not your main claim. Also, remember that it is only an enjammed line if there is no punctuation at the end of the line. There are 13 enjambed lines in this poem. You should also keep in mind our previous writing tasks, such as using the poet's last name by itself once you've used the full name, and using short quotations. You don't need to use a speaker this time, though, as this is clearly the poet talking directly to us, her audience. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like the class to direct their eyes toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on lightandteaches.com or on Twitter. I am at Lighten Teaches. 
The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 58 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent.